Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast, the morning after. It is November 7th, 2018. I am Charlie Sykes. I think I got about two hours sleep. Uh, Michael Warren, David Byler joined me as well. Okay, so David, you had to be up all night too, right? Yes. Yeah, I love I, mean, I figured you're geeking out, waiting for last minute calls. Michael, did you get uh, did you get to bed early at all? No, I filed my piece uh, and crawled into bed about 1.30. Uh, then my kids woke me up, so yeah. it was. Uh, but I'm I'm doing great now. I'm ready. I'm ready to talk. I'm ready to analyze. I'm I'm I've got a lot of caffeine in me, so let's let's do it. There's not enough caffeine in the world to get me going here, though. I was I was I was actually you know doing the the MSNBC thing at the Walker election party, which was kind of a surreal experience. It was not. It was bizarre, but it was not boring. And of course. That race was so close. It was within hundreds of votes. And then finally, we got this report that there were 47,000 uncounted voters from the city of Milwaukee. And suddenly people are going, what the heck is that about? And the moment when they released those numbers, basically adding 30,000 net votes to Tony Evers total, it was just like the air went out of the room. It was just, it was stunning when you realize that the entire era is over, but enough about Wisconsin. So the president having a press conference uh, the day after uh, the Republicans lose the House of Representatives, add uh, Senate seats, and Michael, you were watching this. I was listening to it. Uh, the president says this was a really close to a complete victory. He was actually implying that uh, this was this was good. He was fine with this. It was even better that uh, Nancy Pelosi be speaker and the Democrats have a majority rather than have a, a narrow Republican majority. So give me your take on uh, the president who thinks that uh, – this was this was a, a great reaffirmation. I mean, who could have predicted that Donald Trump would take whatever happened and uh, turn it into uh, a positive story about him? Uh, I mean, this is like everyone. I'm well, raising my hand. Yeah. Sort, of, sort of the most on brand thing uh, possible. Um, look, I mean, he, he has a point, and this is frequently the case when it comes to mm -hmm. Donald Trump's, uh, 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 you know, ability to overstate everything is. Uh, he 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 does have something to say here. He does have something positive to look at uh, the Senate races. It was a positive, uh, uh, advantageous as, as as David can 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 point to and has pointed to for months. A very good map for the Senate for Republicans. Um, there were a lot of surprises, even particularly in the governor's races. Um, uh, and if you don't know what they are, uh, just listen to the president's press conference because he mentioned them about 20 times. Uh, Ohio, uh, Florida, and and Georgia, although I would say Georgia is the least surprising given the polls uh, right. in, 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 in that trifecta. So, um, yes, there are some good, good uh, things that Trump can point to. Um, but if he were a different person, uh, if he were a different president, you might have expected uh, a little or a lot more humility – uh, when it comes to the House results, which uh, really were, I think, I, I don't think I remember watching last night everything happening on cable news and on Twitter and even in our sort of personal uh, uh, weekly standard chats. And I, I, I kept thinking, we're all underestimating how much of a big deal it is that Democrats are now in control yeah. of the House of Representatives. This changes everything. 
It does, and and the extent of the of the flip in in uh, suburban districts was that that actually lived up to the billing, and it's really extraordinary some of the seats that were lost. Going back to the president's press conference before I we, we move on here, though, I thought I thought the one of the more extraordinary uh, moments was when he started dunking on Republicans who he said had not embraced him and lost because um, they were insufficiently Trumpy, and he went down by name, you know, uh, Kaufman and Mia Love and. Basically, just saying, you know, you know, bye. See, I didn't get any love from Mia. Love. It was, it was even for this president a, a remarkably ungracious moment. But there's no question about it. This Republican Party looks a lot Trumpier this morning than it did yesterday, isn't it? I mean, that the 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 House Caucus will be much Trumpier, um, and you 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 clearly have the satisfaction that the president have of purging some of these. I would say maybe moderate or more responsible members of of the caucus, and and one other point, it's just you look at this, the results. You know, you you lose some of the I would think some of the better Republicans. You know, Barbara Comstock, uh, uh, Cabellos, uh, and then and then you watch Collins, Hunter, and Steve King being reelected. Collins and Hunter are under federal indictment. King has been to disgrace himself with the white nationalism, and yet they get elected. So it's really it's uh, that may be one of the more troubling omens, I think, long term for the Republican Party, the, the people they're losing and the people that they continue to embrace. Well, look, every district is different. Um, it's unique. And um, the, the, the fact is, is that in a two party system, the two parties are really big and have lots of different uh, uh, people of different stripes, and uh, and 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 that's just the nature of a, of how a two system uh, political party works. Uh, but what's interesting is what you get to here, Charlie, which is there's almost um, uh, it's almost a, like it's a part of the program for President Trump and for sort of Trumpist Republicans to uh, cast out anybody who is not uh, sufficiently loyal. Um, which is fine, I suppose, as far as it goes. But you do end up with a minority in the House of Representatives, and, and in many ways, I mean, you said that the party looks different today than it did yesterday. Um, it, in many ways, the, the the makeup of the House conference is a lagging indicator of where mm-hmm. the party really is already. Which, um, and I argue this in a point at the Weekly Standard uh, in a, in a piece uh, that went up uh, last night that mm-hmm. that. You, it, there are a number of Republicans um, who went along with uh, President Trump. Maybe they didn't like Hillary Clinton. Maybe uh, they felt like judges were the most important thing, and so they held their nose. Uh, they voted for for Donald Trump, or maybe they've even said they supported Donald Trump. But what came down to it, and I think it's clear looking at these districts, these are districts that have voted for Republican members of Congress before. They were represented by Republican members. That Republican voters decided either not to show up or decided to vote for the Democrat. We don't know specifically, but it's clear that, that that's what happened. So you have to ask yourself, um, uh, you know, Trump can celebrate, he can denigrate those uh, uh, those Republicans who lost, who, who didn't hold up, which, by the way, is not entirely factually correct. Uh, Katie Arrington, uh, a Charleston, South Carolina-based uh, candidate who beat Mark Sanford, in the Republican primary that was amazing, for, the, yeah. for the House, who uh, uh, who who ran as a Trumpist Republican and said Mark Sanford was not Trumpy enough, wins the primary and loses that district. Um, 
she she could you could not put any light between her and Trump yeah, in terms of the good. issues. So it, it's not entirely factually true, but it's also uh, it, it does make you wonder. Okay, what what is this all about? Is this about making a big broad party, or is it about simply you know giving fealty to Trump? Yeah, I think we we know the answer to that. Uh, I want to recommend uh, Jonathan last piece. Five things Trump probably learned from the midterms. He learned nothing from them. But you know, Republicans overperformed expectations in the Senate. The mini Trumps did well. Yeah, Corey Stewart loses. Chris Kobach loses. But you know, we have Ron DeSantis, Brian Kemp win. Uh, the Cucks loss. He means that ironically. The people we were talking about, the Mike Kaufmans, uh, the Barbara Comstocks. Uh, for uh, Trump's political instincts were vindicated. Uh, yeah, it turns out that maybe it was a, at least in the Senate a winning strategy to go with America and carnage, um, you know, which which apparently worked. I want to get to your piece. Uh, Trump is is in trouble. Um, but David, you can weigh in on this because I'm I'm, I'm going to sort of just go off on a little bit of a riff here about the way this played out and the way Democrats are reacting to what happened last night. And of course, you know, they are. They are crushed about the Florida results, um, the text, you know, the, the the Beto not not getting not winning um, and also uh, apparently losing the the Georgia governor's race. And, and and my take on this is as you step back and you go, you know, the the, the these were races all fought in Trump country. They have to be have always been in the really unlikely category. I mean, let's start with Florida. Florida has a zero income tax. Lots of people from like states like Wisconsin go to Florida for the zero income tax. Democrats nominate a candidate who is far to the left of the center of their own party who talks about spending and increasing taxes. And wow, amazingly, a hard shift left, the hard shift to the left in a state that has no income tax. He loses. What a surprise. Um, Georgia. Same sort of thing. They were testing the adage, you know, the 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 principle. What if you did not appeal to people in the middle? What if you went to your base and you moved left? Same thing, really, in 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 Texas. So, in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm thinking that people were really distracted by the bright, shiny objects. You know, these were the squirrels out there, and they got all obsessed about winning these races that they were probably never going to win in the first place, and ignoring what I think is. And even more interesting, at least for me, you know, I know David, you have other things that you want to, you know, get get to. But I, you know, I'm looking at the upper Midwest. Let's just talk about Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Four states. There were eight races for governor and senate. The Democrats win seven of those eight. These are all states that Donald Trump has to win to get through the electoral college, and. These are significant victories and significant defeats for Republicans, but the Democrats are still going, oh, but Beto, you know, why, why didn't we flip, uh, flip Florida? You know, had, had Gillum and, you know, had he won, I think they would have, Democrats would have assumed that that was, or they would have taken that as a sign that, yes, that's what we need to do. We need to move hard left. That's how we beat Donald Trump. Um, but obviously based on the results last night, no, uh, look up the upper Midwest, the Republicans, uh, I mean, the Democrats did well by essentially running on on traditional Democratic issues, much more centrist uh, approaches. So, David, that's that's the end of my rant about the, the bright, the bright, shiny objects. Yeah, well, I, I kind of think that the Democratic Party is a bit haunted by the ghost of the emerging Democratic majority, um, mm -hmm. which the book itself, as written, um, is actually a really pretty good book. But essentially, there's this, you know, sort of overdone, popularized version of it out in the narrative, which is which is essentially that demographic change is going to allow Democrats to move left on 
policy and culture and still win because the populations that support them, um, you know, whether that's racial minorities, whether that's, you know, more educated white voters, uh, young voters, so on and so forth, that those populations are growing. And I think that kind of underlies a lot of this dynamic that you're talking about. Um, in Florida, uh, people hoped that, you know, a candidate who is very left on a number of issues, Gillum, would be able to yeah. sort of take a swing state. Uh, they both the, the Republicans and the Democrats agreed there to sort of fight that one out on culture and fight that one out from the polls. And the Republican ended up winning. Um, and uh, in Georgia, you had a similar thing happening. I put Texas in a little bit of a different bucket. And I, I really want to think harder on this one because O'Rourke's margin did outperform he did sort of well. what the fundamentals would yeah. have suggested. And Texas is a different, uh, different sort of animal uh, compared to Georgia or Florida. Um, so I would say that, but I, I think that you're, you're making a really good point about the upper Midwest. We've seen, uh, in the polling prior to the results and then in the results themselves, a significant recession in sort of Republican margins between 2016 and 2018. And, you know, there are real cities in the upper Midwest that, uh, matter, you know, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, so on and so forth that, um, you could see greater democratic margins in, um, I haven't had the chance to look through absolutely everything yet, but you, you also probably are seeing some recession in the Trump country parts of those States. And yeah, if you, if you pull hard left, that may or may not work as well there, you know, Evers had a, a pretty left platform and he underperformed Baldwin by a significant amount. So, you know, that's that's my uh, my response rant. Well, yeah, and, and and also you 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 think about the the Trump effect and what it meant. Now, now, David, you 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 did call this. You said that uh, Scott Walker has a Donald Trump problem, and I tried to push back uh, on you on, on that. And you look at the numbers, what happened in Wisconsin, and that's my explanation. I mean, here's a guy that survived uh, recalls and protests, uh, but uh, the the headwinds of Trumpism were, I think, just too great. And and you just look at the turnout. The turnout factor in Dane County, which is Madison, Wisconsin, and in Milwaukee, which are the Democratic bases, the the increase in the Democratic margin is just stunning. I think, just off the top of my head, um, Tony Evers won Dane County by 150,000 votes last night. He won Milwaukee County by pretty much the same uh, margin. These are again adding like 100,000 votes uh, to the margin from 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 2014. And and that strikes me as very much a Donald Trump reaction is that people yeah. came out and, and the fact that, you know, the, in the Senate race, Leah Vukmir ran as basically a, a, a Trump mini me. And I think that that really uh, ended up hurting the Republican ticket because she made and talked about Trump and talked about the wall and the caravan. And you look at where those votes came from. These were people who wanted to cast a vote, uh, you know, against Donald Trump. They wanted to cast a vote against Leah Vukmer, and enough of them cast the votes against Scott Walker. Yeah, I genuinely think that if almost anyone else who plausibly could have become president uh, other than Trump was president in right now, that Scott Walker would have a third term. I think that a lot of Trump's wounds are self-inflicted by the way that he kind of talks and acts and his, uh, uh, a number of his non-economic policies, the Twitter, you can, you can go down the list, the little rocket man mm -hmm. thing. Like you have tons and tons of it, of examples of how Trump is underperforming what we might expect 
expect a normal, you know, Republican president to be performing, uh, given the current state of the economy. So, uh, and if there was a Democratic president, you'd have Republican turnout really amped up, and that would have helped Walker. So, yeah, I mean, my you, there's a lot of things that happen in these races, and the state-level stuff really does matter mm -hmm. in these governor's races. But I I do think that the, the one good and right take is that if anyone other than Trump was president, well, and I guess other, if Walker was governor, yeah. he wasn't president. But if anyone other than Trump uh, was president, that Walker would have another term. Okay, so David David Byler, you have been doing the swing seat model, and you have been mm -hmm. predicting all along that Republicans were going to keep uh, the the Senate, and mm -hmm. we're going we're going to pick up seats in the Senate. Um, well, before I asked you what what your what surprised you that you got wrong, let me ask you which, which of your predictions did you feel the best about that you, yeah. you called you called this one. So I uh, I felt good about a number of things in the model. Um, West Virginia and Montana stuck out to me because mm -hmm. in the final days of the campaign, the model uh, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think the model roughly doubled the Republican chances in both races, and but still gave the Democratic candidates Tester and Manchin the edge. So I feel pretty good about the the picture that that painted overall. The model also. Uh, saw a late surge for Holly coming. It didn't quite get the magnitude of that surge, but it had figured that one out. Tennessee, uh, it got right. Uh, Texas, it you know, it didn't. Uh, it had a cruise at like a ninety percent win probability. So I think that was helpful and sort of you know pushing back on the Beto's going to win, Beto's going to win thing. I mean, he did overperform the fundamentals and he did you know outdo his polls, but. He still lost. So I yeah. thought that was good. It knew that the race was going to be close in Arizona. And right now that's exactly what yeah, we're wow. seeing. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of, a lot of wild okay, stuff. So, so, so your, your big, your biggest miss. Yeah. Well, it depends on, uh, it depends on how you quantify it. Honestly. Um, if you are thinking about just in terms of overall, Oh, the other place that did well was North Dakota. Mm -hmm. uh, but if uh, you're thinking about uh, places, there are two that come out in my mind. Uh, the first one is Indiana. That's a case where mm. the model gave Donnelly a very slight edge, but Braun ended up kind of blowing the doors off of that one. Um, that's a state where, you know, it is hard to poll, but unlike, yeah. and in 2016, you did see a late surge for the Republican Senate candidate, but you didn't see a lot. A lot of and, folks got that one wrong, though. What about Florida? Florida is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Florida's <laughs> the one. <laughs> yeah, if if I've been, you know, prodding you about Scott Walker this whole time, I feel like you've been prodding me about Bill Nelson this whole time. Yeah. So my model thought that uh, Scott would had about one in five, uh, one in five chance of uh, holding on or, or of winning in Florida, uh, of unseating Nelson. Um, that's going to a recount, but I, I Scott's looks like he basically has won that one. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean the, the polling did show sort of a late boost for Nelson, but those polls ended up being wrong and Scott ended up winning. And, you know, sometimes that's the way it happens. Yeah. Okay. Now I want to, want to switch to, um, the piece, uh, Michael, you, uh, filed, I'm looking at the, at the sheet here. You filed it at one Oh four AM. <laughs> <laughs> and and the headline was very interesting, especially in light of the president's press conference where he's kind of got this swagger and thinks everything's going to be great. Your headline is Trump is in trouble. He just doesn't realize it yet. I want to get to that in a moment. But today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Look, with all the recent news about online security breaches, 
it is hard not to worry about where your data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk because you are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, they often sell it to other corporations who want to profit from your information. Well, that's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has an easy-to-use app that runs seamlessly in the background of my computer, my phone, and my tablet. Turning it on only takes one click. Basically, it works this way. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. And protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and you want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, which I think you do, ExpressVPN is the solution. If you do not want to hand over your online history to your internet provider or your data resellers or <clears throat> reporter from the Washington Post, ExpressVPN is the answer. So you can do this today. And you can find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash standard. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash standard for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash standard to learn more. Okay, Michael Warren at the President's Press Conference, he uh, sort of laid out what seemed like an implied threat that uh, he's really willing to work with uh, the Democrats on things like infrastructure and, and other issues, but but there won't be any cooperation if they go ahead and investigate him, that, uh, that you can't uh, walk and chew gum at the same time, that if they come after him with the subpoenas and the oversight, that basically the deal is off. Um, you're not going to be able to, uh, you're not going to be able to cooperate. First of all, do, do you think that's a fair characterization of what he said? Yes, to the extent that you can sort of f figure out what exactly he means. He sort of danced around <laughs> when, when, when pressed by, by the, some of the reporters. Well, does this mean if they subpoena, yeah. they're not going to worry? He sort of – he wasn't really able to give a straightforward answer on that. But yeah, yes, essentially that is, that is his, uh, his bargain here or his, his offer here. Um, I don't think it's going to work, but that's, that's what he's saying. Yeah, the, the, the moment of kumbaya, uh, you know, I mean – we go through this ritual every time after an election where we have the, you know, the calls. And then and I thought it was interesting that Donald Trump is is endorsing Nancy Pelosi, telling the Democrats, you really should keep her. She really deserves that. I don't know how that actually plays. But OK, what do you mean when you say that Trump is in trouble? He just doesn't realize it yet. Well, uh, and I think I was uh, my my theory was confirmed by the press conference. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I sort of look at it in two different ways and almost on two different planes. The first is kind of the practical way in which Washington and Trump's relationship with Capitol Hill is going to change. And and we hinted at it just now, talking about the subpoenas, talking about the um, uh, the control that Democrats will now have on the House committees. Um, and, and uh, you know, much more so than the Senate, the House has um, is, is very much ruled by the majority, uh, and, uh, and whatever the majority says mm -hmm. goes. Um, so you're going to have a lot of, uh, investigations. I think somebody like John Dingell, the former Michigan, uh, democratic chairman of the house energy and commerce committee is a perfect example, uh, of kind of the model of what Democrats are going to do. They're just going to subpoena, 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 investigate as much as they can. And you know what? 
they have every right to do that. That's the power that the Constitution gives. Yeah, that's the way it's uh, supposed to be, right? That, Checks that's and balances. Right. That's right. Divided government. Yeah. Now, it, it, it may not be uh, always fair. Uh, and, uh, you know, it may come two years from now if, if Donald Trump appears to be targeted unfairly. Certainly, if it goes to impeachment, Nancy Pelosi knows this, it could uh, there could be a backlash. But there's also the possibility we are going to learn a lot more about what's going on in the Trump administration, uh, maybe some of the oversight that wasn't happening when Republicans were in charge. The other thing that's going to happen practically, Charlie, is uh, the simple fact that the uh, legislative agenda of the White House, such that it has been for the past year, uh, which it, which was moribund, is now dead. It is uh, the Democrats control what comes to the floor of the House of Representatives. Um, there's really no way for uh, for Republicans to have any say about what gets voted on. It's very difficult. Okay. Well, what what about infrastructure? He was basically implying um, that he's willing to work with the Democrats. Uh, he would be able to you know get that through the House of Representatives. And he then he said, and then we go to the Senate, and uh, all the Democrats in the Senate will support it. And some Republicans basically implying that he was prepared to make a pivot to the left and govern with Democratic votes in that in the House majority and with uh, with enough Republican uh, and, and Democratic votes in the Senate to get things through. What's the shelf life of that? I mean, I think if we were talking two years ago, that would be a great uh, strategy for him. Uh, I don't think it would have been good for uh, for conservatives, but I think it would have been good for President Trump. Um, I just uh, count me very skeptical yeah. that uh, that this is a Democratic Party that wants to do anything with uh, Donald Trump. He's made himself yeah. so toxic. Democrats have sort of, I, I think, to their detriment, uh, have made any any dealing with uh, with the Trump administration toxic. I just don't think it goes anywhere. Um, if the pivot does happen, it will be on something like infrastructure. Um, but uh, you know, uh, let, I, I'll let you know when infrastructure week yeah, happens. Yeah, exactly. So you you actually have an interesting analysis here. Um, you know, consider what the Democratic takeover of the House means politically for Trump. Now, let me just take the 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 thirty five thousand foot level. A lot of people are saying uh, this is actually going to help Trump in certain ways because number one, he's no longer responsible for everything that happens. He has a foil. He'll be able to blame them. Um, he'll be able to run against Nancy Pelosi. All of those things. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, Donald Trump, you know, he 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 did seem genuinely not terribly phased by this. He he seemed to think that that th this gave him something that he could beat up on or push back on um, between now and 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 in twenty twenty. Look, that may happen, Charlie. This may be um, a, a sort of a repeat of what happened in twenty twelve for Barack Obama. He was able to use the Republican led House as a foil to say that, uh, you know, Paul Ryan and the Republicans in the House are trying to do all these bad things. You can see yep. a sort of parallel. Clinton Clinton did that back in uh, 1994, too. That, that, that's yep. that's correct. Um, so, um, yes, I think that that could happen. But I, I, I want to look at uh, the way in which Democrats won a majority uh, here. And uh, can I say really quickly, mm -hmm. sure. um, before we get into that uh, specifically, I'm seeing a lot of uh, folks saying, well, you know, the Democrats – they didn't win as many seats as, say, Republicans won in 2010. Mm -hmm. um, hardly, uh, you know, we can debate about what a wave means or what a wave doesn't mean. Um, but, you know, this is so this is hardly the rebuke of Donald Trump uh, that that 2010 was a rebuke of uh, Barack Obama and the Democrats. Um, I, I just think as a practical matter, 
the number of seats that Democrats held in the in 2010 going into the 2010 elections um, was so much larger than the number that Republicans had. Republicans had, were going into 2018 with a much smaller uh, uh, majority. Uh, and so I think if Republicans had the number of seats uh, in the type of districts that they would have had to have uh, to have that big majority that Democrats had in 2010, you might have seen a commensurate uh, uh, win by Democrats. So all that being said, which districts went for the Democrats that were held by Republicans? They were um, they were not all in one part of the country. They were uh, you know not not all necessarily um, uh, looked the same. But I, I think what they what they they share is that they're suburban in general. Um, they're they have an educated population uh, and uh, probably uh, uh, most of them above average wealth. And they're throughout the country. We're not talking simply about the coasts here, about you know the New York, the Mid Atlantic around Washington D.C., around Florida and California. We're talking about districts in uh, Minnesota, districts in Texas, districts in Colorado. You mentioned Mike Kaufman, um, districts in Kansas, Oklahoma, Utah. I mean, these are deep red states. But in suburban districts, as I said earlier in the podcast, it seems that Republican voters are turning away from the Trump Republican Party. I think that is something that the president is not he, – he seems to almost enjoy the fact that they're no longer a part of the party because they don't like him. Uh, that's fine if, if it's a popularity contest and you just want to find enough people to love you. Um, but but when you're building a, a party and a coalition that is sort of long term success, uh, I'm not sure I'm not sure this is the way to do it. Hmm. Um, so, you know, obviously, we all know that today marks the beginning of the 2020 campaign. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, David, that you're already constructing the models there. I'm already thinking about it. I've, I've got a couple of things sketched out. In some notebooks. Of course he is. Of course he is. Yeah. Yeah, because well, that was so much fun, right? I mean, this, this is, is like, this like it's like, hey, there's Christmas again next year. We get we get to do this, <laughs> this, this again, you know. And I was thinking, and I want to go back to a point that I made a little bit bit, bit earlier. I'm still sort of fleshing it out. Um, uh, the, the 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 results that everybody is obsessing about in Florida, you know, you can tell as a Midwesterner, I'm getting a little bit annoyed by the, by the whole, you know, a Florida, Georgia, uh, Texas thing. I mean, again, I understand what they're you know. Uh, the the drama and the the, the per personalities here, hey, you know, I think it highlights how obsessed the Democrats were with finding stars because the, their 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 bench has been so decimated through the Obama years. They are so desperate to have that star power. You know, Beto, who was a star? No question about it. Gillum, who was a star? There's no question about it. You know, Stacey Abrams, you know, who would have been a major national national player. Um, but it also strikes me that. That, and I was listening to some conversations this morning. You know, you start to say, "Look, um, given those kinds of results, uh, does that change your thinking about 2020?" And I'm I'm thinking that people who were willing to argue a week ago that the Democrats should, you know, you know, follow the the Andrew Gillum strategy and go say, well, you know, Kamala Harris or Cory Booker um, for president, uh, they're going to have to rethink. They're going to have to rethink that strategy. And I'm 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 guessing that you're going to see um, more push for the Democrats to say, look, the areas that we won, the ones that you were just going through, Michael, uh, and the way they won, would suggest that that we need to go more centrist as opposed to the experiment that they tried in Florida and Georgia. Yeah, I I think that makes a lot of sense for me. Trump's odds of reelection are the same 
yesterday as they were today. I still think it's 50-50, but I think this this changes some of the thinking that Democrats might take to the 2020 primary. And this brings up a point that you brought up earlier in the podcast, which is that the uh, Republican margins have receded in sort of the upper Midwest and sort of the new areas where Trump made converts. So I, I do tend to think that there's, there's something to that argument. I also, I just don't know how this is going to work out within the Democratic mind. Because the, the counter argument to that, the counter argument to that would be that um, parties aren't always practical, right? And that uh, a lot of people on the left really, 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 really don't like Trump. So they're just going to go in hard for whoever cuts the, you know, biggest contrast to him and whatever vectors are important to them. But I... I do think that this is uh, this election in general is a tough data point for people who want to say, you know, the way for Democrats to win is to go full Democratic Socialist or insert whatever other leftward movement. Yeah. Do you agree with that, Michael? Uh, I do, um, I, because I think that uh, the results of uh, if, if Republicans have a suburban problem, I think Democrats have a rural big state problem. They can complain all they want about the Electoral College. They can complain all they want about a Senate popular vote, um, which is a ridiculous idea under under their current system. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that the way the game is played, the way you win nationally, is you also have to appeal um, uh, to rural voters and to voters who are, uh, who are not currently in the Democratic uh, uh, coalition. Uh, so that's why I actually look at somebody like say, Amy Klobuchar, the uh, uh, Democratic senator who won re-election handily in uh, in Minnesota yesterday, um, uh, as, as somebody who, if the Democrats were being rational, um, which, as David points out, parties are often not thinking in those ways, um, that might be somebody, she might be somebody, she, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, composed herself well in the Kavanaugh hearings. I think she'd be a perfect person to sell that uh, that kind of message. I just think she's not necessarily what the Democratic uh, base, the Democratic primary voters are looking for right now. Yeah. And of course, we just we, we go back to the principle that, that do never overestimate the Democrats ability to to screw something like this up. You know, I and I talked to a lot of voters last night when I was at this 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 event, and it, it is remarkable the number of voters today Actually, it's not remarkable. It's a cliche now. Um, you know, the, the term negative partisanship, that when they vote, what, what motivates them to vote is, is how much they dislike the other side. And I was talking to, uh, to to one woman who was, you know, talking about why she voted for various candidates. And she said, and bear with my language, she said, I just didn't want to give power to the people that, uh, the, you know, that the walk around wearing the pussy hats, the pink pussy hats. <laughs> and... And and, you know, I, and, and again, you know, people in Florida, they may hate Donald Trump, but they, they do not want their their income tax to go up. People in Wisconsin do not want their property tax to go up necessarily. So um, and I also think that this is something that, that Donald Trump, you know, unfortunately really grasps that that demonizing your opponent and using that kind of, you know, that they want to, uh, you know, have the country invaded, they in favor of open borders it is, is effective. There are a lot of Americans that right now may not be Trumpists, but they really, really don't like what they think the Democrats are. Yes. And, you know, and the, and the Democrats gave the Republicans just a number of gifts that did that abolish ice issue was really extraordinary. And I'm not sure that they have a coherent answer to, OK, so what are you going to do with the border? What is your answer? We know that you're against, you know, family separation and you don't want to build a wall. 
could you articulate what you were in favor of? And, and, and I do think that a number of them fell into the Donald Trump trap. Totally. I, I, and I think this is, we're moving in, we're look, if we're looking toward 2020, I think we're moving uh, uh, right back to where we ended up being in 2016, which was uh, uh, the, the election was ultimately a grinded out. It was, uh, it was, can I, uh, can I get my side uh, sort of yeah. frightened enough of the other side to come out and get and cast a negative vote. And you know what? Uh, it, it, it works. It, it, it's, 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 this is not a value judgment. I'm not passing value. It's, it works. Uh, uh, and, uh, and that seems to be where 2020 is heading. Yeah, it, it does work. We're not going to have a morning in America campaign in 2020. That is just not going to happen. Um, since American carnage worked two years ago and it'll work now, or at least uh, Donald Trump thinks it works, uh, boy, you will expect that to be ramped up. Um, so any, any other, David, uh, any, anything that really uh, j- jumped out at you that you wanted to point out, having watched the results, anything that surprised you, anything to watch? Um, I'm, I'm trying to get a complete total of the number of legislative seats around the country that have changed. Um, I'm seeing numbers of like 300, 333 uh, Democratic pickups in legislative seats. With the plus seven governorships, it's going to have an impact on redistricting. Any, any, yeah, any yeah, yeah. No, it's a good question. A couple, a couple notes on on those things. One is that um, you're right about the state legislative seats. Another thing that's interesting is the National Council of State Legislatures has uh, been uh, sort of circulating this map of post-election ca- chamber control. And if memory serves, I'd have to double check this, but I think. Minnesota is the only state where both chambers aren't owned by the same party. So you're going to have a lot of states where, uh, you know, one party is going to be able to rule, especially if they have the governorship as well, and kind of try out and do the whole laboratory of democracy thing, except in the context of kind of our extreme partisan uh, world. So I think we're going to see some like pretty interesting uh, legislation and trial balloons come out of the states. Um, redistricting is really important in the big states. This is, uh, it, and that's a, that's a thing that's important because Republicans did a little bit better than I think a lot of people expected them to. I thought Democrats would net six to eight and it looks like they're netting about six. I know other people thought Democrats would net Mm. about 10 ish, uh, you know, uh, governor's mansions, but, um, basically Republicans did manage to hold some of the big states that matter that are going to have redistricting cycles up. So that's important. And then just the last thing that I, I am kind of thinking about with all of this stuff that happened is that this was kind of a good night for the day. Then I know that sounds like a kind of self-interested sort of, you know, very narrow niche thing to say, but in the aftermath of 2016 and for, you know, the entire two years after that, Everyone was talking constantly about, oh, can we trust the polls? Like, is any of this data, is any of this forecasting reliable? And, you know, everyone who's in my world is scrambling to talk about correlated errors and, you know, pollsters making the same mistakes across states and so on and so forth and this, that and the other. But I'm kind of hoping that 2018 pushes things back into the middle where people think that the data is helpful but not clairvoyant because really the data kind of got it right this time. I mean, my model had 52 Republican Senate seats. They're going to end up with 53 or 54. And that's, you know, that's not a big error. A lot of the models and my own projections had Democrats with, you know, in the high 220s or low 230s, depending on how some of these House races turn out in California. It looks like it'll be in that neighborhood. 
Um, it just, this is an election where basically what we thought would happen based on our best read of the data ended up happening. And to me, that's an encouraging sign that like hmm. our measures aren't as broken as a lot of people thought that they were after 2016. Hmm. I think you, you're probably right, but I'm guessing that a lot of Democrats uh, are not going to say the same thing about the Senate and the way that that played out. Um, yeah. I mean, that, because that, that there, there were some. But, it, but again, I wonder whether people's um, expectations were really aligned with reality. Yeah, yeah. And there's a couple ways to sort of, you know, slice that up and, you know, talk about margins, because in some of the races, you know, the call was right, but the margin was off. And then some of the races, the call was wrong, but the margin wasn't actually so bad and so on and so forth. But I, I'm just kind of trying to take a 30,000 yeah. foot view. I, I do think 52 was the most likely result for the Republicans. And I don't know, 53 or 54, given the, given the enormous task that polls and data are trying to do of, you know, contacting a representative sample and getting them all to pick up the phone and waiting them correctly, yeah, and, no, it's, it's, you know, it's, understanding how it evolves. I, I just, I feel better about things post-2018, just having sort of this result in the collective back pocket of data world, if you will. All right, gentlemen, I, I need to go take a nap. You know, since <laughs> I was, so, I, you know I'm, I, and I'm in favor of that and have no shame whatsoever. So uh, thank you for, for joining me on the morning after. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.